I thank you for the opportunity to be here and to share with you from the Word of God. I'm going to ask that you, uh, I'm going to share a couple things in response to the, uh, the video here, but if you'll open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 28, Matthew chapter 28, and we're going to look at verses 16 through 20. I'm going to expound upon that a few minutes this morning, helping you understand what God has said there and reviewing much of the text with you uh, as a great reminder. But as you looked at the video today, I want to spotlight several kinds of ministries here. One, prison ministries. In the high desert, there are something close to 10, 12 prisons now uh, from federal, state, uh, uh, illegal immigrant uh, uh, detention centers. Uh, the picture that you saw there was, was a chaplain who serves totally illegals. And uh, most of the time when we look at uh, illegal immigrants in California, the only thing that we think is those who are coming from Central America or Mexico or South America, and that is simply not the case. He reaches and ministers to people throughout the world. I just ordered him 40 uh, Vietnamese Bibles and uh, Bibles from the Mideast, from uh, uh, Europe, all over. And you have a part in that. Now, let me share with you what happens in his ministry there. Uh, Brother Edgar Stevens, the chaplain there. On a typical month, he will lead anywhere from 30 to 50 people to a saving knowledge of Jesus as Lord, as Lord and Savior. Then he makes sure that he, he tries to lay the foundation as much as he can with them, provides Bibles and resource uh, materials for them, and then helps them go wherever they need to go. And uh, I'm just going to be quite frank with you. God is bringing these people to us. We've long known that California is a mission field. And now the world is coming here. And it has been for quite a while. I remember as a boy, my third grade teacher says, Donald, you'd better learn Spanish because they're coming. And I didn't learn. I didn't listen. I learned Greek. Uh, and uh, uh, but at, but at any rate, I was there and it was understanding what it was that we need to reach people for Christ. Many people coming. And I'll allude to the scriptures as you understand this particular circumstance. Our responsibility is to proclaim the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to these people who are coming. And let the spirit of God and the word of God work in their hearts to do the right thing. And God will do that and work with them uh, and, and uh, see that they do the right thing. You remember there was a slave that Paul sent home with a letter. And, and uh, he, he ran away for whatever reasons. Got saved. Paul discipled him. Sent him home. And, uh, and then let God work you know, from that perspective. I want to share with you about Total Restoration Church. It will be, it, you know, I think I shared with you the beginnings of the work the last time I was with you. It's been about a, a year except when I was ministering, helping the church on Sunday evenings for a while. Uh, Total Restoration Church will be launching their church on uh, September 14th. They now have a little more than 50 core members in their church family, and they haven't even opened the doors yet. I met with them yesterday, and a young, powerful pastor, uh, well, extremely well studied. Uh, and, and he sat there, and he had opened up the Word of God, and I sit there, and Sandy and I am sitting there in their worship service yesterday, because they have two services on, uh, on Saturdays. And I and, uh, and just sit there, and wow. If I could duplicate him nine times over, what an amazing thing. But why am I sharing this? Because of the fact that this church family has long, since I was a young man, I've, I've been aware of the ministries of this church and the heart it has for reaching people for Christ. You have something, I don't know, it's somewhere around in the whole region, 
maybe 40,000 people in the whole region, 25,000 or so within Ridgecrest confines itself, and then you, you go without. Well, after a while, there's only so many people that need to be reached. You have you know, about five other sister churches that are in our association here in this town. So God is doing a work here in Ridgecrest. And a church like the Macedonian church, it didn't make any difference where they had any money. When they had a heart for God, they had a heart for reaching people for Christ. And so they were doing it. And I commend you for doing that. Helping support the, the two works in, in Mojave and Cal City, amongst the other works that you see. Every one of these uh, uh, churches that you saw, you have had a hand in helping them. I have a twofold ministry. My first ministry is to help churches stay healthy. That means I work with pastors and leaders. The other is in planting churches. But the need... For helping churches who are struggling in California is extreme. Uh, the picture you first saw, Grandview Baptist. Grandview Baptist used to be a pretty dynamic church in the Barstow area. They ran close to 200 in worship services at one time. At this point, they have about 12. Well, the problem, part of the problem is it's in the, most, it's in the lowest economic status of any economic group in California. Most of the people either live on Social Security or welfare. Just very few people even have jobs in the community. Well, when that earthquake hit several years back, destroyed the facilities. They have no money to be able to even replace it. They can't even afford to tear down the facilities. So they're meeting in one room now and, uh, and, and, and working and doing whatever. And I just haven't given up on that church. I believe that God's got something for that church, given the right person then go and reach there. Well, why am I mentioning that? Because you've had a hand in helping them stay alive. Their sewer system goes out. They have no money. Well, we as a sister churches, some 65 churches, we all combine our resources, and part of that budgeted money was able to go and help them put a sewer system in so they can continue using the facilities. That's where your money's going in terms of it. Yes, you helped me. Most of the, the funds that I have, I'm bivocational, by the way. Uh, I'm also director of admissions for a university. I won't mention the name of it. Uh, I'm not here to advertise that. That's not my call. My call is to assist you. But like the Apostle Paul, uh, I, I don't believe in part-time ministry. And so it does create a little bit of grief in our house because of the fact when you work 60 to 70 hours a week, and that's literally what I do, about 10-hour days, most six days a week, sometimes seven then, then uh, you know, you, it's because of my heart to reach people for Christ. And I shared this with you. My passion is to help others become well-informed, responsible followers of Christ who have a Christ-like concern for all people. My passion is to take that which I've been taught and teach to others so that they can walk where the shoe leather meets the pavement, whereby God gets the glory. And so I'm an equipper. My life passage is found in 2 Timothy 2.2, simply teaching what I've been taught. Taking the word of God and helping people grow up in Christ. And then the Lord has allowed me the privilege of being able to work with, with churches all up and down the high desert region, which most of you are acquainted with. And uh, so that's what that's all about. That's your money. Now, I didn't bring, come here to bring you a bag of blessings, by the way. Uh, I just happen to believe... That if I take the word of God this morning and the spirit of God works and the word of God and the spirit of God work hand in hand, I don't have to worry about bringing you a bag of blessings. I don't have to worry about being some kind of extraordinary preacher 
or, or get your hair up on end or whatever else it is that I might do. I'm interested in expounding upon the word of God. So I'm going to ask you a couple questions to get you to where I'd like you to be with regard to this text. And then I'm just going to teach from it for a few minutes this morning and, and, uh, and see if we can't uh, uh, see what God can do from there. I'm going to ask you the same question I asked you the last time that I was here. If you're to die tonight, you're to die tonight. Would your final words have any significance? Would they be important? Would they, what would they say? I'm going to share with you what my father told me on his, the last words my dad shared with me. His last words were, were this. He looked at me and he looked me up and down. He looked at my brothers. And please don't misunderstand. You know, I'll qualify this. He looked at me and he says, you need to lose some weight. That was the last words my father shared with me. Now, that's been a long time ago. I was 21 years of age when my father told me that. But it made a huge impact on me. But where does that carry me into eternity? Now, obviously, I weighed about 200 pounds at that time as a young man. And uh, don't quite weigh that much now. I do still jog, you know, I'm 62, you can believe that, and I can still run about six miles every day. And typically, I can do that in about eight minutes. So that's moving pretty good for an old man, guys, because I know most guys half my age can't even make 100 yards. But you do it by baby steps and growth, and God turns things around in your whole life, and you take your care of yourself mentally, physically, socially, and spiritually. Now, I say that because of the, of the fact is the words that you share and the words that you have are incredibly important. Now, in our text, we have a fascinating little situation here in Matthew chapter 28, verse five. And I'm just going to hone in onto this because I'm going to ask you another question. What if, like my dad, since I'm using him as an illustration, what if the Lord allowed my father to come back and spend a, a half an hour with me and my family and his friends and all the people that he ever knew. And God just somehow collectively brought him back and, and he brought my father and he said, now sit down and you're going to share some things with him. What do you suppose my father would share? You thank my father because my father was an RA counselor and a leader for the Orange County Association back when I was a boy. If you know what RAs were, they were called the Royal Ambassadors. And it was a missions organization. And, and, and would you think my father would come back and say, remember all those camping trips we went on? Do you think my dad would talk about that? Or do you think my t dad would say, you know what? I made a lot of mistakes. I'm going to discuss with you the mistakes that I've made over the past years and then, so that you won't make those mistakes. Do you think my dad would do that? Do you think my dad would sit there and he would say, oh, you know, you remember when? You remember when your mom and I got in a fight, the only fight you ever saw me and you cried? I never saw him one fight. My father only got in with my mom. I don't even know what it was about, but it scared me half to death. You remember that? Well, I'm sure sorry it happened. Do you think he'd be talking about that? I don't think so. You know what my father would be talking about? He would come and he would get right to the cutting edge, right to the chase. And my father would look at me and all the other friends straight in the face. And he would say, you know what? I've only been in heaven just a short time now, just a short time. And something I've really discovered. One, I've discovered that I have a whole lot more loving God than I ever realized. And the other thing I've discovered is, is that I have a whole lot more holy God than I realized. And because that loving God 
loves you and he must have justice in his holiness for sin. Unless you change your life and make a solitary commitment to him as Lord and Savior, you will not see the kingdom of heaven. That's what he would talk about. And it would be that single solitary thing. Now, in Matthew chapter 28, verse 5, if you look at it, I'm just going to hone in on one little phrase. He's not here. He's not in the grave. For he is risen. He's risen. Now, go to Matthew chapter 28, verse 16, for the continuation of the story. Now, I'm just going to ask you, and don't out, you, know, you don't have to say it out loud, but do you believe that Jesus died on the cross and rose again on, from the grave on the third day? You believe that with all your heart? Well, I believe the disciples believe that as well, since they were witness of it. They clearly saw the risen Lord. They saw him die. They saw the incredible agony that he went through on the cross for them. And he, they heard him say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Now, in this passage of Scripture, beginning at verse 16 and 17, it's often a passage of Scripture that we ignore. And in this passage, I want to expound upon it just a little bit and point some things out to you. Notice the text. It says, Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee. Now, some time has passed since the resurrection. And the Lord has sent the disciples. Now, in the context here, Matthew's talking about a specific situation where the eleven have been called together by the Lord. It does not say that there were any others with the Lord at this time, although we know that that occurred. But in this particular situation, he's addressing the eleven. And he sends them to a mount. Now, it's kind of interesting to me. When you look at the passage of Scripture or you look at the book of Matthew, you'll find that we start out with the Sermon on the Mount. And then we go to the transfiguration where we have the appointment on the mount. And then when we come to this particular situation, we have the commission on the mount. Whenever the Lord began to speak and he began to speak powerful things to those who were his committed followers, he took them to a mount. Just kind of fascinating. You see, because it was a, it was a symbol of what occurred in the Old Testament, which I don't have time to go through. But you study, you'll find it. Where did Moses go? He went to a mount and he received the profound oracles of God himself. Now, God, the Lord Jesus, stands on the mount and he gives a commission. But notice what takes place. It says, then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. Now, that's what we've been doing this morning. We came to exalt the name of the Lord Jesus Christ through the word, through fellowship. That's what has occurred this morning. And, and through, through the understanding of the word of God. And, and, and so we lifted ourselves up. Now, when I worked, I, it was when I, in our study yesterday with Pastor Bashan, he just expounded upon the word worship. And he just did a, a just a, 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 uh, an etymological study of the word, just an analysis of the word. And what does the word in its base means? Well, the word worship means twofold. It's a twofold thing. Number one, whenever a person worshipped, they bowed down. And then they exalted whoever it was. And in their, their particular situation, recognizing who they were and recognizing how unworthy they were, the only thing that they could possibly do was to bow at his feet and kiss his feet. That's all they could do. 
Now, if I'm a king, and, and in that culture, that what I would do is, I, if I met another king, you know where I'd smack him? We'd kiss each other right on the lips in that culture. But if I was a little lower, hey, I was a general. Well, I didn't have that kind of relationship. So as a result of that, I, at least I could kiss him on the cheek. That's as high as I could go. Depending on the rank is where the individual was. And so the apostles worshipped. The disciples worshipped the Lord. That's the first thing that occurred. But here's the thing that's distressing. And the thing that I want to point out to you. Notice what happens. It says they worshipped him. But some doubted. Now as a boy I used to read that. And I said, well, what, how, did, how in the world could they have doubted? These are the, the, the eleven. These are the unique. They saw him. How in the world could they have doubted? And by the way, whenever you think of the word doubt and you think of a doubter in the Bible, who do you think of? Just anybody. Thomas. Most of us would think of Thomas. Well, we're going to take a look at that because I want you to understand what this word doubt is. And by the way, it says some doubted. That means more than two. There was at least three or more of the apostles of the disciples who were doubting. Now, the question is, what did they doubt? They just presently bow before the living king, the Lord God Almighty, in his presence and, and, and are worshiping him. How is it they could be doubting? Well, let's see if we can explore what this word doubt means, because I want to take you to what Thomas was all about. And that's found in John chapter 20. If you want to spin over there real quick, you can. But I'm going to run fast so that uh, if you get there, it's OK. If you don't, it's OK. Now I'm going to hone in on about verse 24 in this situation and give you a quick up view. It says, Now Thomas called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, We've seen the Lord. And so he says to them, Unless I see in his hands the print of the nails, put my finger into the print of the nails, and put my hand in his sight, I won't believe. And then eight days pass by, and Jesus appears. And notice what takes place. Then Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach your finger here and look at my hands, and reach your hand here and put it in my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. Now I want to submit to you that in the Greek text here, the word believing is not doubt. It is two totally different words in the Greek text. And by the way, when you look at the Matthew text and you look at this text, believing and doubt are not even the same words. They're not even spelled that way. Isn't that right? You see, so you got a situation here. Now notice what takes place. Now, the Lord says, reach your finger here. Look at my hands. Reach your hand here and put it in my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. Now in the text, it doesn't say that he actually touched him. All it says is, is that he responded and his declaration was an absolute declaration. One of the clearest declarations that Jesus is who he said he was and who he is. He's my Lord and my God. Now, the word Lord in that context means that he's more than just my he's 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 above all. He's my Lord. If I go to the Roman passage of scripture where it says you must confess Jesus as Lord and Savior. In that particular passage in Romans 10, 9 and 10 is talking more about master. It's talking about him being God. Because the Romans, when they heard the word Lord, they thought God. They didn't just think one who's over me in that particular passage. But, what, but in this situation, we have an interesting thing. Notice that Thomas declares. Now, the point that I want to make here is, was Thomas a doubter? No, he wasn't. 
What Thomas wanted was the facts. He was a show me the, ki- the facts kind of guy. He needed the facts. Just give me the facts and then I will believe. Now hang on to that thought because I'm going to come back to that because of the fact that it says some doubted. Now, were there any doubters amongst the apostles at any particular time? Well, let's take a look at Matthew chapter 14. Follow with me to Matthew chapter 14, if you can get there before me. Matthew chapter 14. I've got it marked in my Bible so I can flip there quickly. Matthew 14, and let's go about verse 25. And in verse 25, it says, Now in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them, walking on the sea. So it's late at night. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, it's a ghost. And they cried out for fear. So now two things are occurring. This storm is just no light storm. The winds aren't blowing lightly. The waves are heavy waves. They're in, they're in a situation where they could easily die for the intensity of the storm. It was a catastrophe in the making. And so it seemed. Now, it's amazing what occurs here. And so it says, there's a ghost, and they cry out for fear. But immediately Jesus speaks to them, saying, be of good cheer. Hey, it's me. No worries. Don't be afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. And you know the story. So he came, and the Lord says, come. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid And began sinking and he cried out, Lord, save me. Now, what happened here? What was Peter doing? As long as he had his eyes on the Lord, what took place? He walked on the water. When he started looking around at the crooks and the crannies of the waves and all the boisterous things and the wind, especially the wind and how it was blowing him, all of a sudden he began to sink. It's a great lesson, you see, when you begin to doubt because look at what happens in the text. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said to him, Oh, you little faith, why do you doubt? Now, this word doubt is exactly the same word as we see in Matthew 28 where they doubted. Now, let's go back to Matthew 28, and then I'll continue what we have here. So who was the doubter? If there was a doubter, it was Peter. Thomas needed the facts. Peter, he'd get all hung up in the situation. And man, he was a blow and go it kind of guy because he was a trucker of the day. And that's basically what it is. You know, and you know, you know, I've been around a few truckers, you know, and I know their language. They have a very colorful language. And 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 that's and I imagine Peter being much the same way because I've also been around some fishermen. Now I'm not talking about your pastor fishing right now. I'm talking about the professionals. Uh, I've been around a few of those guys, and they're kind of like truckers. They they can tell some colorful stories. Now I'm not saying all of them, but they do have that reputation. Now here's the point. In Matthew chapter 28, it says some doubted. What was Peter doing? He was looking around at the circumstances. Now, here's the point. And this may be you. You believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, died on the cross, rose again. You believe that he's all powerful, that he's God and he could do anything. You believe that you don't need to say it out loud. But if you do say amen, Amen. there's a few of you that believe that. Now I'm going to get you the rest of you. If you believe that somebody say amen. 
And you know, so let it be. That he has all power, not some power. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, they're looking at the situation in their life. And they're bowing before him. And they're doubting. But what are they doubting? They're looking around and they're looking at all the things that are going on. They're not having any trouble believing in Jesus. They don't have any problem believing that he's the resurrected Lord. That he's their God. They're looking at themselves. Now think about it. What's Thomas doing right now? Probably. Because remember, it's more than three. Thomas is sitting there and saying, now, I don't know if I have all the facts down. So if I don't have all the facts, then how can I go out and do what God wants me to do? I'm just not sure that I can do it. I'm not sure that I can handle all the situation. So I need to study and I need to study. And I know some people and they study and they study and they study. And they've been studying for years and years. And they have still studying and they're 90 years old. But they're still studying. Well, I got to, you know, I'm not, I don't quite got it yet. So therefore, I can't really do anything to proclaim the gospel of Christ. Now, that was probably Thomas. He's sitting there thinking that. But think about Peter. Think what he just recently went through. How he put his foot in his mouth and how he dishonored his God. He's sitting there thinking to himself, man, who's going to listen to me? Who's going to listen to me? Think of John and, and, and his brother. In their particular situation, these guys were mouthy dudes. Now, if you read the epistles of First and Second, Third John, you read the Gospel of John, and you read the Book of Revelation. John never minced words. Well, sometimes when you preach and teach like John the Baptist, your head's going to get cut off. Now, in our day, most of the time we don't get our head cut off; it's just socially cut off. You've said things to people in your family. You've said things to people in the community. You went to that, that I remember as a young boy and, and, and I ordered a piece of, of, of thing that had, I got a ticket because the back light was broke out. And so I go in and I order the thing and the guy says, well, it ain't here and you're going to have to pay $20 more. And I went bananas. I'm a college student. $20 to me was like 2000 I had no money. And I just ripped that guy out. And then later on I realized... What an idiot I was and how I did not honor my, my Lord and my Savior in that situation. Now, I won't tell you the rest of the story. I never went back. <laughs> to my shame, I'm telling you that. But maybe that's you. And maybe that's what John's going through John and his brother's mind. You see, and what, what's happening in their situation. And you see, so they're doubting themselves. It has nothing to do. Remember in Acts chapter 1, if you're a follower of Christ, you've been around a while, you've heard this. He says, I give you power. That's dynamite. That's strength. And he says, I give you power to be my witnesses. Now, what is a witness? I've been in law enforcement in my younger days, went through police academy and everything. And one of the things that I learned about a witness is a witness just tells what they have seen. They don't need a Ph.D. to do that. They just tell what they have seen, what they have experienced. And the Lord says, I give you power to share that with whoever goes. Now, notice then. So they worship. The first thing that happens is they worship. The second thing that occurs in this particular situation is that they are concerned. So we've worshiped. Now, if you've truly worshipped today, one of the things that's going to be involved in your life is you're going to go out and say, Lord, what is it that's required of me as I go? Now, I want you to notice what Jesus does. Because remember, he's only talking to the 11. So if he's only talking to the 11, what does he do? Because they're doubting. He knows they're doubting. 
He knows there's, you know, I, I look at me and look at that. Let me tell you what he does. There's 11. He walks right over to them and he says, all authority has been given to me under heaven and earth. As you go, make disciples. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Baptizing them. That's what he told them to do. Now, when you are in a circumstance and then you're in this life and you say, what am I supposed to do when I, as I go? What am I supposed to do? I'm to make disciples. I'm to teach. I'm to baptize. And I'm to help them observe whatsoever is commanded of them so that they can have a full and meaningful life. And by the way, the word observe means to keep. And it means in such a manner to keep so that I'm protecting those who are observing. So if I'm a follower of Christ and I lead you to Christ, then I'm responsible to help make sure that you're kept in the faith and you're grounded in the faith. Well, that's not all of the story in this passage of Scripture. Because when you look at it, he says, I, he speaks to them with authority. So what is it you're called to do? When you have doubts, what am I called to do? As a church, we collectively move together and we say, look, there's Mojave, there's California City, there's churches and that are greatly needed in the L.A. basin and there's no one there. We'll send someone. We'll provide resources for them. That's what you're called to do. And it says, as you go, as you go, make disciples. True followers, true learners. As you go, baptize them. Oh, by the way, notice what it says here. It says, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Uh, any of the elders here, have you baptized yet? It's coming. If you baptize, usually Pastor Bill, when he baptizes, does he say, I baptize you in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit? Anybody ever heard it? You ever heard it any other way? But if you go to the book of Acts, you'll find that it says, just baptize them in the name of Jesus. Well, why is that? Well, the reason is, is because baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit has nothing to do with a formula. It's not a magic formula. What it's saying when, when the apostle Matthew was writing in this particular text, what he's talking about, he says, I baptize you in the name. Well, if I say I pray in Jesus' name, most of you understand that I'm not praying in Don Parker's name. I pray through the blood of the Lamb, and the Father hears me on the basis of who Jesus is, his character. And so when I baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, I'm baptizing in the name of the triune God, who's one God, not three gods. One God in three persons. And so when they say baptize you in the name of Jesus, what were they saying in the book of Acts? All that he is. Triune God. And so when I explain to someone who Jesus is, and I explain to them that he's God in the flesh, he's all of God. 100% man, 100% God. Don't get the idea that he's 50-50. He's not a 50-50 deal. By the way, this is the word of God. Don't get the idea that man wrote half the, the Bible and God wrote the other half and it was a 50-50 deal and they collaborated. It didn't work that way. God 100% breathed through the writer and the writer 100% wrote the text. There was no interchange. No other. It's not a 50-50 deal. But that's what happened in this particular text. And notice what happens when you get the woozies about sharing your faith and you have the doubts. 
Again, he says, all authority has been given to me. Now, notice how the text closes out. And he says, I have commanded you. And lo, the word lo there is the word look with about three exclamation points. It says, behold, look. Then what does he say? He says, I am with you to the end of the age. So what do you got to be afraid about? What do you got to have woozies about? What do you got to be, be doubting about? Say, I've got the authority. He's given it to me. I've got the power. He's given it to me. I can go. And I want to close with this. There's the love of my life sitting right over there. That shows she's the love of my life. She's got one on there. This is the second one she had. The first one didn't cost so much, but this one cost me four arms and 12 legs. Oops. And, and she's the love of my life. I'm not going around saying, Sandy's the love of my life. I don't do that. You love your son, you love your daughter. I have, I have three sons and a daughter. Ten grandchildren. I love every one of them. I'm letting every one of you know. I love them. Now who in this building would not love their children? Or their wife? Or your husband? Or your grandfather? Or your father? Your aunt? Your uncle? The friend you have? Why then on earth? When we have the power to demonstrate it. That we don't. Share the love of Christ in our hearts with other people. Take the fear out of you. Remember who he is. He's the God of the universe. We worship the, the, the loving, holy father who's given every person on the face of this earth. And I don't have time to explain that. The opportunity. But I may share this with you. We are accountable. We're accountable to share that message. That was the assignment. That's the priority assignment. There is no other assignment. Not how the worship service goes together or the style of the music. Whether it's good or old or it runs too slow, it doesn't matter when people worship anyway. My first assignment as I go is to be a disciple maker. Be a disciple maker. Be a disciple maker now i'm looking at this congregation of people and i believe that god has brought me here for this moment in this hour to share this message and expound upon this word and that means that he's been speaking to you through his word and you need to respond and there's been times where maybe you were a little more faithful to this than other times but I'm going to ask that you stand before God in this moment before your church family. And if you're a guest here today or you're not a follower of Christ, I've been talking to followers of Christ. You're checking it out. And what's my supposition? My supposition is that Jesus is who he said he was and he died on the cross and rose again on the third day to save us from our sins and he's God in the flesh. And I have a choice. I either I can commit to him or not. It's my choice. It says, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. So it's your choice. It's your choice. If you're a guest here today and you're checking us out, these believers, we're passionately committed 
because of the fact that Jesus says there's a heaven and there's a hell and nobody gets sent to hell apart from their own choice. God passes judgment based upon what people choose to do. That's their choice. So that's what you're observing. What I'm talking about is followers of Christ. Let me be kind of crude. Getting off your duffs and putting your love where your feet are. Will you do that? Say, that's for me and my house. From this day forward, I'm going to be a disciple maker and I'm going to tell people I love Jesus. I don't know. I don't have a PhD. I don't have all that stuff. But I know who Jesus is. And I'm persuaded that he's able to keep that which I've committed to him against that day. And I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. Father God, thank you for this time that we share together. Make it so. Make it so. As we sing a song of response, speak to those who are here today, those followers of Christ, to make a renewed commitment to be disciple makers. Make it so, Father. Make it so. And help me to do that as well. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.